Tēnā koutou, nō mai, haere mai, and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, National could form a government with the numbers in the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll. We'll have reaction from National Leader Simon Bridges and we'll dig into what it means for all parties with our panel Ben Thomas and Josie Bagani. Obviously there are a number of things that we have plans to do over the next 12 months that I think will only continue to boost New Zealanders' confidence. We'll take a closer look at a seat that's shaping up to be one of the most interesting contests in next year's election. John Key is backing former Air New Zealand CEO Christopher Luxon to run for national in botany. But can Jamie Lee Ross cling on? could easily be the national candidate. Him and Simon used to be wonderful <laughs> friends. Do, do you want them to be friends again? And Kiwi Build started as a flop, so what next for the government's housing plan? Phil Twyford told me he'll be putting pressure on councils to grow up and out, and he also wants private finance to help out with roads and pipes. No firm predictions on how many houses will be built, though. I think it's not really my position to do that. Will you ever make a prediction on that front again? <laughs> Good question. Uh, we start tonight with national strong showing in the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll. Let's have a look at the numbers. You can see National leading the party vote there with 47%. Labour dropping three points since our last poll to 40%. The Greens on seven. New Zealand first just missing out on that 5% threshold. I will talk to Simon Bridges in a moment, but first a quick reaction from our panel. Josie Bagani, political commentator and director of the Council for International Development, and Ben Thomas, PR consultant and former staffer for the National Party. Josie, what do you think? Well, it's showing a softening of Labour's support. That's this poll and other polls that we've seen recently too. Why is that? I mean, people think the country's on the right track, unemployment's low, uh, inflation's low, interest rates are low, so it has to be something around people just not feeling like enough is being done and when it is being done, that it's not being done competently. Ben? National and Simon Bridges will be doing somersaults and cartwheels about this result. Labor will be worried, obviously, about the downward trend in its support, but also I think they'll be nervous about what this means for New Zealand first, uh, coming into an election year, where they, they will want the government to show unity and cohesion. We have plenty more time to delve into these results. Let's see what his somersaults look like. Joining us from Wellington this evening is National Party leader Simon Bridges. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. We are a year from the election, so what is your path to power? I think our path to power is quite simple. I think we show a contrast with the government. I agree with what some of at least Josie was saying, which is that I think what New Zealanders are seeing more and more is a government that doesn't know what it's doing, that doesn't have any sense of direction or plan for New Zealand, that just isn't delivering and they expect better. And of course what we have to do is we have to deliver that better and I think National knows what to do in that regard. OK, let's consider the poll results from this evening though. Are you pinning your hopes on either New Zealand First or the Greens missing out on winning electorate and falling under that 5% threshold? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think uh, I have a very clear sense of options we'll have next year, and New Zealanders need to watch so what this are those, space. So what are those options? I'm not going to go through them. Why, because, why not? Why, what's, because, what's the big secret? You're, because, we're, we're a year from the election. Isn't it time to tell us what the plan is? No, because well, like, I'm happy to tell you the plan as far as National is concerned. I think first and foremost, it's about re-injecting confidence in the economy. And I know what to do in that regard around tax relief, around dealing with the unnecessary regulations in New Zealand, in regard to getting New Zealand moving with infrastructure, all the stuff I don't think we're seeing from this government. Do you need a partner? 
Well, I think that will become clear next year. And I, as I say, watch this space. I think we will definitely. You keep have on options. saying watch this space. You keep on watching, saying watch this space. What do you know about a potential support partner that we don't? Well, look, I think what we've seen in this poll that we've seen today is that even on that poll, you know, you've got an ACT party, you've got a Maori party over the weekend that's announced candidates. You know, I, I happen to be always thinking about these things because as a responsible leader of New Zealand's biggest political party, that's my job to do it. And I say again, watch this space. Tell us this. Outside of the parties that we already know about, and I'm talking about the likes of ACT, the Maori party, is there a party that you believe can either reach that 5% threshold or win an electorate that would be a potential support party for National come next year's election? I think you have to wait and see. I mean, I'm not going to go through all the permutations of that. You've got a poll tonight that isn't an election. Uh, we get that, but it does show National a good position. I think it does show uh, the lack of faith New Zealanders have in this Labour-led government. I think next year you will see the options that I'm alluding to mm. start to appear quite clearly. There's, there's no doubt that there is a bit of a trend here. Na national at 47%. The last two polls under the One News Colmar Brunton poll rising from 44 to 45, now 47. You're seven points clear of, uh, of Labour. But what about the preferred Prime Minister polls? You are personally at 9%. Um, the Prime Minister is still four, more than four times popular than you. It's still a problem. Look, I don't put much store in that. It's the party vote that matters. We've got the team, and I think, you know, what New Zealanders are seeing is mm. a party in Labour under Jacinda Ardern that just isn't delivering and that they know uh, they deserve better on. What National's got to do is, yes, hold the government to account and make clear its shortcomings, because there are many of those, and I make no apology for saying that, but also lay out our positive plans. I don't think you've seen mm. a political party in opposition do the sort of work we have done with discussion documents, and we've got a lot more coming to show the heft, the sense of vision we have for New Zealand, because New Zealand can do so much better than it's doing right now. Let me ask this before we leave you this evening. We're going to be focusing on the electorate of Botany this evening. Is it helpful or unhelpful to have John Key backing Christopher Luxon in Botany? <laughs> because, because undoubtedly there are going to be people who look at that arrangement and say that John Key supporting Christopher Luxon in that space undermines your authority as leader. Well, I don't think that's quite what he said. And look, it's a former leader's prerogative. I, I think what this does show, and I as a current leader of the National Party am not going to get involved in an active selection where there's a competition and there will be a competition. I, I think it does show, though, we're blessed with talent. I think it does show that actually, uh, whether you're left or right, um, people can have a sense that we will have top mm. people in positions should we be able to form a government at the next election. Tēnā Thank you for your time this evening. Sure. That is National Leader Simon Bridges. Let's come back to our panel. Ben Thomas, Josie Pagani. I will get those numbers up once again so we can have a look uh, at the party vote. National well clear of Labour, 47 to 40 between the major two parties. Ben, what do you put that down to? I think it's what Simon Bridges was saying. This was the year of delivery for Labour. Well, that's the year that things are meant to arrive. We see things that are either, you know, stillborn or are just perpetually being kicked off into the future um, of these, you know, much fated royal commissions that Labour um, relied on with its, you know, various working groups. Um, you know, the Royal Commission into Abuse um, looks on the brink of sort of spinning apart and breaking up. Uh, the Royal Commission into Mental Health, we still don't have any new programs in the mental health space, you know, more than two years into this government. Um, 
it is, you know, Kiwi builds, you know, we'll hear more about <laughs> later. Um, but again, that's just been a, a huge flop for the government. And so it's really hard, even for the government's supporters, to point to anything that they've, they've achieved. Mm. I, I would note, just mm. before you speak, Josie, that, that there still are a large number of people, according to this poll, who simply don't know or, or refuse to give us um, their preference. 18% of respondents in this hadn't picked one of the major parties, or hadn't picked any, any party, which is a significant so number. So that's interesting. Yeah. So that, those undecideds have gone up, and that tells me, you know, I mean, Simon Bridges talked about watch this space. Well, there is a big space, and it's between his preferred PM level and, and Jacinda's. It's still vast, right? 38% for Jacinda Ardern and about 9%. But it's reasonable for, to for expect Simon that, Bridges, that, that I mean, that, that, that party vote has stayed in the 40s, according to this poll, for, for the last year yeah. at the very least. But I think, I, I, I'm not sure his diagnosis is right, because if you remember back to when Labour won, so National had really good right track, wrong track, countries on the right track, that was really healthy for them. But people had this rising feeling and concern about three things, housing, cost yeah. of housing, inequality uh, and infrastructure. So those are the things that I think people, those undecided voters, feel that Labour isn't quite delivering on. Right. And so that's for the space that National needs to move into, I think, rather than some of the stuff that Simon was talking so about then. Basically, you, you agree that, that this, this poll reflects Labour's problems or um, the, the time with which Labor is taking to, to pass significant change rather than any major wins for National, although yes, I suppose I they're one and the same I thing. Think, I think there's a tendency still uh, in this Labor government to ban stuff rather than build stuff. So there's a lot of mm. banning gold mines, banning roads or delaying them for 10 years, which is actually the same as banning them, um, and plastic bags and so on. What are they building? You know, and 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 people are saying the infrastructure needs to be that roads mm. need to be there. Um, you know, schools and hospitals and so on. So I, I think there's a you know Labor does well when it builds stuff and when yeah. it's got a vision for that. But there's an awful lot of what we're not going to do. I'm still intrigued though by National's path to power, and I ask Simon Bridges about this every time I interview him because it, I mean it, it would be a bold strategy, would it not, to a bet against New Zealand First in an election year, and to expect that if things weren't looking really bad for Labor's coalition partners, that Labor wouldn't consider throwing them a bone and offering up an electorate seat to either the Greens or New Zealand First, Ben? Mm. Yeah, I don't think it's that straightforward. New, New Zealand First, uh, you know, there, there's this trainial bloom of Winston Peters in election years, uh, but it hasn't held true the last two times they've been in government. They've fallen below the 5% both times. There are some serious storm clouds gathering over New Zealand first right now. Um, we've got leaks within the party, dissatisfaction from the party apparatus, but much more importantly, some we're starting to get some questions over donations to New Zealand First mm. and actually that was a scandal that consumed them for about a year with Winston Peters in 2008 and saw them turfed out of Parliament. Um, so I think there'll be a lot of scrutiny on that party. I think that New Zealand First themselves will be starting to get very nervous at 4%, about a year out from the election. Um, they're they're, they're often low between elections, aren't they? And then they rise up during, yeah, we, during the election. We saw during the New Zealand uh, in the New Zealand electoral study uh, results you know, that were released last week that I think about uh, three quarters of New Zealand first voters that the previous election wanted them to go with national, not with Labour. So there might already be a level of dissatisfaction you know, from that voter base that New Zealand first is going to have to assuage somehow. Now they've tried to do it through differentiation, through acting out, through causing problems and putting the kibosh on some of those schemes that Labour does want to build. Um, 
you know, there must be a concern mm. from the Prime Minister that New Zealand First will actually make the coalition ungovernable in the election year. Coalition partners are going to be a problem for National, though, on the whole. I mean, yes, we've seen uh, that in this poll that, that National and ACT could govern alone, but, you know, banking everything on ACT and their policy last time, which was to basically hope that, Nash, that, that New Zealand First comes in under 5% did not pay off but, and it won't pay off again. But if the Māori so Party were to win a seat and, and, and I mean if they were to win a seat there's no guarantee they would well, necessarily go with National. That's interesting because I think um, uh, the, the new candidate uh, who will be standing in mm. Te Taihauru, um, so that's Debbie um, Debbie Narawapaka, yeah, yeah. I, uh, she's an interest. She's the CEO of that of that iwi body in Taranaki. Um, you know, she's a very popular person up that way. I think she could potentially mm. ro uh, roll Adrian uh, Rurufi. Let me ask quickly about Jacinda Ardern's slip in the preferred Prime Minister numbers. I mean, oh, she she peaked at 51% in April, shortly after the Christchurch attack. She's down to 38% in the preferred Prime Minister. That sounds like a significant slip. You've got to keep in mind that Simon Bridges is at just 9%. Will Labor be concerned about this, Ben? Because obviously so much of their support base comes from their Prime Minister's popularity. Jacinda Ardern is the franchise for Labour. Um, she, she, you know, they were a 25% party when she took over and she led them into government. Um, th their hopes are entirely pinned on her personal popularity. It's not pinned on the competence of their front bench. It's not pinned on their laundry list of achievements. It's entirely her charisma, her personal pull. Uh, New Zealanders' affection towards her. So, yeah, th this will be a concern. I, I don't think it's a huge concern because there was always going to be that huge kind of peak after her outstanding performance after Christchurch and now we're just returning to baseline. Yeah but I, I think it is a risk I mean and I come back to that that uh, uh, data we know that in the last election what people were concerned about was inequality house prices mm. and so on so what we haven't seen from from Labour is a is a real commitment a serious commitment to put most of that money into social housing rather than Kiwi build that would that would really um, please the base but also child poverty Jacinda Ardern came in saying this was her reason for being in politics was child poverty so we've heard an awful lot about climate change it's an important issue we haven't heard a lot about about mm. child poverty and I think that eroding away on two sides from her own base but also from from you know others who are going actually okay Stephen Colbert wants to hang out with you and Elton John wants to be you I'm not sure that's the most important thing to New Zealanders right now. Kia ora kōtua. we will continue the conversation again shortly Phil Twyford is next still determined to fix housing but how will he do it and is Christopher Luxon, former Air New Zealand boss, a shoo-in to become Nationals man in botany? And what would that mean for Simon Bridges? Plus, later, we meet the District Court's newly appointed boss. It's very important that the District Court is seen to respond to these calls for change. He has ambitious plans to transform our courts for victims and offenders. An exclusive interview coming up. Kia ora, welcome back. Kiwi Build may have been disastrous to this point, but the architect of the government's building programme hasn't given up on fixing our housing market. Phil Twyford is focused on pushing councils into line on growing up as well as out. His new urban development authority, Kainga Order, aims to cut through the red tape that can hold up big builds. He told me it won't be able to bypass the RMA, but the process will be much quicker and the public will still have a say. Actually more consultation than happens now, but it happens up front. You've got uh, the ability to make submissions, 
the independent hearings panel would then make a decision uh, and you could only appeal on matters of law. Now that's important, you've got to have a process that gives people a chance to have a say, um, but you want to speed it up because we need to build more and, and build faster. But isn't the RMA responsible for the delays in this space as it stands? Wouldn't it be, be, be far more powerful if, if this authority was essentially in a position to bypass the RMA where required to fast-track these developments? So the um, Kainga Aura will have the ability to um, cut through the red tape, um, speed up the planning permissions. That and RMA bit is central though, isn't it? I mean, I mean the RMA is what, what most people would agree is causing so many delays in this space. And there are precedents when it comes to bypassing the RMA, obviously after the Christchurch and Kaikoura earthquakes. We've seen this sort of thing in the past. Yeah, I think um, uh, the government would agree that uh, the planning system is um, a big part of the problem in the way that councils make their plans and their consenting decisions mm. under the RMA slows down and stops the ability of our towns and cities to grow. That's why David Parker, the Environment Minister, has got a comprehensive resource management reform program mm. underway. That's really going back to basics. That's that expert review panel isn't reporting back until mid next year though, so if we're to be fast tracking these developments knowing that the housing shortage will hit 150,000 by next year according to Kiwi Bank economists, really we need to be pushing this stuff through faster. So the other thing that we're doing in this space as well as giving Kainga Ora um, powers to speed up these large scale developments, we're also, uh, at the moment, we've got a, a draft national policy statement under the RMA. Now this is the way that central government expresses its view about what needs to happen and how councils make their plans and their consenting decisions. And it has the power to legally direct councils to change the way they do these things. And what we're proposing to do is give the councils very clear direction. They have to free up the planning rules. They've got to allow their mm. cities and towns to grow up and out and they've got to do um, strategic planning, 30-year plans for growth in their community. So will you be able to override unitary plans? Well, the national policy statement will tell councils that they have to review and update their district plans mm. and the unitary plan in Auckland to allow, for example, more height and density around um, public transport nodes, around uh, rapid transit interchanges mm. and where there's access to jobs and good transport. So that is gonna make, that's going to have a big effect. Is it though? We know that we know that you know, everyone agrees intensification is is important when it comes to housing. But most councils, when they go to their ratepayers, find it very difficult to push this sort of thing through. Which is why I think it's really important for government, central government, to step up and say um, there's a bigger national interest mm. here. If we don't build more quality intensification in our cities, if we don't allow more affordable housing to be built then we're stealing the future of the younger generation and all of the people who desperately need affordable housing. And one of the problems we've had is that many councils have, I think, been beholden to some NIMBY interests who mm. say, you know what, we don't want two or three storey dwellings in our neighbourhood, we don't want to see affordable housing, we're happy with things the way they are. So who wins though? If, I mean that's a direct tension isn't it between the priorities of central government and the priorities of local communities who don't want to see intensification. You've got a national policy statement but who actually wins in that face off? Well I think it's about finding a better balance and at the moment um, we have seen you know in, in many communities uh, over the last few years uh, a shift towards intensification and Auckland is the most strong example of this. The benefits of the last, the unitary plan have meant now that the most of the new consents in Auckland for housing are townhouses and terraces, medium density housing 
and most of it's in rapid transit corridors mm. where people have really good access to public transport. We want to push a lot further and we want to apply those principles right across cities from one end of New Zealand to the other. Councils have expressed concern that, particularly when you're, when you're looking to build out in cities, that they're going to be lumped with the cost for infrastructure, mm. for developments they essentially oppose. What's your response to that? Well, it's a very legitimate uh, concern, and um, many of the councils have used their planning rules as a way to protect their balance sheets because they don't have the ability to borrow any more money to build the roads and lay the pipes for new developments. So at the same time as we want to free up the planning system, we're also looking at new ways of financing the infrastructure. And in a case like, you know, the high growth cities like Tauranga, Hamilton, Auckland, Queenstown, um, we are looking at bringing into law the ability to use private finance, so long-term debt finance or infrastructure bonds that would finance, for example, the roads and pipes mm -hmm. in and around a new subdivision. And that debt would be paid off over, say, 50 years um, by a targeted a levy or a targeted rate in the community that benefits from this. And that would mean that the debt would no longer have to sit on the balance sheet of councils who were already cash-strapped. And it would mean that many more developments, many more homes could be built much sooner. Is, it, is that want. actually improving affordability, though? I mean, you're still passing that cost onto ratepayers, and it might be, what, $1,000 a year for the next 30 years, which is not an insignificant sum? Yeah, so there's no free money here, of course, and it, it's just a different way of financing it. But at the moment, the system's pretty much broken, and there are developments, tens of thousands mm. of homes, um, that are ready to go that are not being built because of this um, financing logjam, this new way of financing infrastructure would break the logjam and mean that a lot more homes could be built more quickly. You have a significant surplus. Why not use that? Well, we already are investing a lot as a government in the infrastructure and transport and, and in urban regeneration projects. But why and, not incentivise these projects through the use of that enormous sum of money? So we already are doing a lot. Arguably, we could do more, and I'm sure that's something we'll continue to look at. But the big advantage of allowing um, private financing or infrastructure bonds is that it means that the decision to build a new subdivision or a new mm. development is not reliant on the government of the day writing a cheque or the council writing a cheque. The decision to go ahead with that development will rest on its commercial viability, and that will mean that we'll get more developments built much more quickly. Are you expecting resistance? You mentioned the NIMBYs before, but this is something that has hamstrung many developments over the last few years. People who simply don't want to have mm. apartments or high-density housing in their neighbourhood. I really sense that there's been a sea change, not, and not just in Auckland, but across New Zealand, and it's up now to government to get alongside the councils and the private sector to push this whole thing forward. So I, I, I'm very optimistic about the prospects for change. Looking ahead then, how many new houses will be built with the assistance of this authority by the end of next year? I wouldn't want to put a number on, on that, Jack, um, but there's a whole kind of pipeline of potential large-scale projects that, that, that Kainga Aura can work with. And we're looking to do projects on the scale of, say, Hobsonville, you know, right. five, 6,000 new homes. Will you be buying land? Oh, that's certainly an option. One of, the, one of the easy wins is to, is to redevelop the places where we already own a lot of, say, mm. state housing land. But Kainga Aura, as an urban development agency, we've always designed it with the view that it's about enabling the private sector 
and iwi and others, councils, to partner together to do these large-scale projects. But it is an option. Buying land is certainly an option. Okay. Mm. So can you give us a ballpark figure? I mean, if you're looking at those large-scale developments, should we be expecting thousands of houses to be built over the next few years? Or are we, you know, in the, in the short term, are we looking at hundreds? No, I would say we're talking about thousands and we're already building houses, for instance, in Porirua and Hobsonville and some of the big redevelopment of state housing land in Auckland. So you can't give us a ballpark figure for the end of next year? No, I think it's not really my position to do that. Will you ever make a prediction on that front again? <laughs> Good question. I'm more interested in getting action and momentum and really delivering real change in the way that we do urban development. And that's the critical thing. I, I want to finish with a personal question, if I can. What, what have you personally learnt about housing over the last couple of years? That it's tough, and, um, but I think I knew that already. There are so many things that are, that are standing in the way that are roadblocks to the development, whether it's planning rules, whether it's the lack of workforce, whether it's the building and consenting system that uh, Minister Celesa is now reforming, it's the high price of land, um, it's the importance of, of transport infrastructure. All of those things come together and we've got to crack those together to deliver the, um, a, a system that's much more responsive to demand and will build the kinds of houses that people want and places where they want to live at prices they can afford. And that's, that's a challenging thing, but we're up for it. Phil Twyford. Hey, send us your thoughts. Kōrero mai. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post your comments on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz and don't forget the famous Q&A podcast. The panel's back after the break. Plus, Jamie Lee Ross, the Botany MP, facing the biggest battle of his political life. Jamie Lee Ross? I think his chances personally are slight. So why Jamie Lee Ross? He's a good person. I would stay with Jamie Lee. Kia ora, welcome back. As expected, former Air New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon has put up his hand for a political career. He's seeking the National Party nomination in Botany, East Auckland. Whether he gets it or not, and let's face it, he probably will, with the likes of John Key singing his praises, the battle for Botany is going to be one to watch next year. The incumbent, former Nat Jamie Lee Ross, fell out with his party a year ago this week and is determined to stay on as an independent. Fina Owen met up with him to find out just how he plans to do it. I want to show you and show you some people I've met and helped over the years. It was exactly a year ago this week that Jamie Lee Ross was dumped from National. Now he's gearing up for a face-off with his former party and parading his successes around the electorate for Q&A. Hey Colleen. Colleen Wright's a big Jamie Lee Ross fan. Colleen, how are you? He helped save her local park from the developers. I don't think we could have done it without him. She's also a long-time national supporter. No worries, says Jamie Lee. She's representative of how he thinks Nats and the electorate can use their candidate and party votes. If Colleen wants to see a national government, I'd say, Colleen, vote national. Um, but also you can have the best of both worlds and you can vote for me as your local MP too. He's inspired by others who've survived the switch to independent. Peter Dunn and Winston Peters and, and O'Hara and Tarong are probably the best examples in, in recent memory. But Colleen Wright is struggling with that idea. He could easily be the national candidate. Him and Simon used to be wonderful <laughs> friends. Do you, do you want them to be friends again? <laughs> oh yes, it was years ago. But it was are you ever going to be friends again? Well, T. Howard, Howard said that you could make up. 
Look, uh, I, I think your nets is I think unfortunately Simon and I had a falling out. Um, and for him and, and Paula, um, they are working so hard to um, see me leave politics because it's personal oh. for them. Last week, the people of Botany were told the former boss of Air New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, has put his name forward for selection to be the national candidate. He's well known and I feel he's got a good brain and he'll be ideal. Luxon comes from a very corporate background and you're obviously using the, the national ticket to get into politics. So would you vote for Chris Luxon or Jamie Lee Ross or someone else? Jamie Lee Ross. Jamie Lee Ross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess Jamie has done a lot of things for Botany. You can actually see some of the things he's done. But he's got a challenge on his hands as there are probably staunch national supporters in this electorate. It's not the first time a celebrity candidate uh, has been involved in this area. The last celebrity candidate that tried to win a seat in Botany was Maggie Barry and I beat her in 2011. Last election, Jamie Lee Ross won Botany for National with a 12,839 seat majority. Botany is growing fast. Just over half of the people in this electorate were not born in New Zealand. You've got the very strong ethnic Chinese and, and Indian communities. With suburbs bordering Otara in the south and upmarket areas like Cockle Bay in the north. And that's where Jamie Lee is taking us. He's working with locals and Labour ministers to try and save the dwindling Cockle population. If I was still a National MP, I would never be able to work with Stuart Nash. I would never be able to work with Phil Twice. I'd never be able to work with those Labour ministers because the blue team and the red team never work together. But now as an independent, when locals come to me with issues, I can actually um, go in and, and pitch in and advocate on their behalf. Jamie Lee Ross? I think his chances, personally, are slight. So why Jamie Lee Ross? He's a good person. I would stay with Jamie Lee. I'm Labour Green. Labour and Greens haven't confirmed their candidates for botany. Apart from this incumbent, only one other is confirmed. That's the new Conservatives deputy leader, Elliot Ekelay. Back at the park with Colleen, I wanted to know if the MP for botany was really considering his future. You must be thinking about your options, though, if you don't pull this off. I'm focused on doing the best job. Be a disaster. Thank you, Colleen. Well, you know, Christopher Luxon, he might be one of those ivory tower people, but he doesn't connect. So will Christopher Luxon get his chance to make that connection? National will confirm next month. Meanwhile, Jamie Lee Ross will make the most of his head start. Goodness me, Colleen is a staunch supporter. Right, we're back with our panel now, Ben Thomas and Josie Bagani. Ben, I'll start with you. Um, Nationals candidate selection is next month. Do you expect the delegates in Botany will toe the line and vote in Christopher Luxon? You never know without getting in there because, you know, you can't just direct um, electorates to do your bidding. Um, you know, that's how you get offside with your long-serving party members, the ones who have been out there leafleting in the rain at, you know, car parks, mm. um, and who have already had to put up with quite a bit with uh, Jamie Lee Ross and Pansy Wong left under a bit of a cloud before him. Um, so, you know, you might see a bit of a surprise. In the end, I don't think it matters if you put up a withered pot plant with a national rosette on it, it would beat Jamie Lee Ross next year. Yeah, although uh, Colleen just wants him to make up with Simon Bridges, so um, he's got a problem right sure, there. If that's going to necessarily supporter. happen any time. No, so. I don't think so. How do you think? How do you think Christopher Luxon has handled this so far, Josie? Do you, well, do you think that, as Ben suggests, that some National Party members in Botany might prickle at what could be perceived as direction from on high? 
Probably, but but I think um, Christopher Luxon's a very different candidate to Maggie Barry. I mean, Maggie Barry was a you know TV personality. Christopher Luxon is a is a credible candidate and a credible potential leader of the National Party. You can't get around that. I mean, he's the, been the head of Air New Zealand, but also he's, he's been involved with the NGOs, and that's quite. I, I read somewhere where he said he didn't know whether he was going to get into politics or run an NGO. Well, he's, he's on the board of Tear Fund, one of our members, and yeah. he's, he's been an influential person and he's deeply involved in that. So I think he's quite genuine. So I, I do think he's a, a threat. The problem is, though, for National that, that he comes in in the election. If he'd come in in a by election, so say they'd got, I don't know, Nathan Guy and Otaki to stand down. Uh, early, run a by-election this year, you bring in someone like Christopher Luxon, a candidate that could potentially be a leader, and then you have at least the possibility of doing a Jacinda close to the election mm. and saying, right, you know, Simon Bridges isn't cutting it, we'll bring in a, 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 a hero and a, a sort of star. Now, might fail, he might not be that candidate, but I think they've, they've sort of snookered themselves. Mm. You get the feeling that they're kind of going... We'll, we'll pass this election and we'll concentrate on the next one and then we'll bring in Christopher Luxon as the leader. Ben, what do you think of, of the relationship between Simon Bridges and Christopher Luxon? Because clearly some people are already pinning a future leader um, title on, on Christopher Luxon. Is, is that the sort of thing Bridges will be anxious about? Future leader is a terrible badge to have in politics. <laughs> um, you know, if you contrast the way that Christopher Luxon has entered politics, you know, if he, if you could say he's entered yet, uh, it's very different to say John Key. Um, John Key came in in a very unassuming way. He worked the room. He met all the right people, but he had this kind of effect that whenever I met John Key when I was maybe 23, 24, and I came away thinking I'm the first person who's spotted his potential. Mm. Other people need to wise up to how good this guy is, and of course everybody in the room was wandering around thinking that. Whereas uh, Luxon, you know, it's been a bit of a klaxon call. It's been a, a bit louder, probably a bit more mm. ostentatious. I don't think that's the best way to sort of, you know, start off. And I think leadership talk is, is all, very premature. All the, all the, with all due respect, the National Party leading commentators are all saying that about Christopher Luxon. So you sort of think he, he must be, he must be a threat, right, in, in, to the leadership now, because. Seems, seems unlikely that he'd like be making a play for a wee while just yet, though. You would expect him to have at least a term in Parliament or a couple of years under his belt. Um, I, I wanted to ask you both about the local body elections. Um, woeful turnout across the board. But, but let's start off with what was probably the biggest result, and, and that was... Of course, Andy Foster being elected and Justin What Leister. do you mean? I'd like to congratulate the new mayor of Wellington, Peter Jackson. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Do you really think? Do you really think that made much of a difference? No, I don't. I think what made a difference, and I come from the Wellington region, mm. what made a difference is that none of us can get to the airport on the roads that are clogged, and you know we're a bit sick of being told that that we can go to mm. the supermarket and drop the kids off at sports uh, using rapid mass transit. Transport or well, I, I found it very interesting speaking with Phil Twyford today, and you know, he said he feels like there's been a bit of a, a bit of a sea change, and that people are supportive of, um, you know, of denser housing um, and, and higher intensity housing around the country. I mean, look at Andy Foster's central policy. You know, he has opposed the Shelley Bay development, which is mainly apartments and yeah, and townhouses. Ev everybody yeah. supports intensive housing around the country, but not in their neighbourhood. Yeah, um, that's just that's why local government in New Zealand is a basket case. Mm. That's why it's disappointing to hear Phil Twyford say uh, that the new Urban Development Authority won't be riding roughshod over councils and bypassing the RMA because it needs to. Now David Parker can be 
noodling around with this comprehensive RMA reform as long as he likes. But so far, the RMA interim reforms that they introduced last month actually make it harder to get intensive development. I think like, one of the things about, I mean, talking about local elections, mm. and we've had a low turnout. Now, that's not because people aren't turnout. educated yeah. about you know, elections. It's because there's not enough to get them out. They don't think it's worth their while. And I actually think if you were, if you were going to devolve a whole lot more uh, responsibility to mm. local government, whether it's um, housing. So, you know, the urban development stuff, it's some good stuff that Phil Twyford's saying, mm. but actually the problem is social housing. That's what we don't have enough of. There's still this kind of I, th I think a challenge with problem definition for the government that they haven't really analysed what the problem is with housing. And it's not really helping middle class kids get into houses, even through, whether it's through Kiwi Build or Urban Development um, Unit or whatever. It's actually, if you gave councils, council housing, you gave them the resources to do mm. the social housing, I think you'd make a huge difference and people would get out and vote for things like that. Alright, we have to keep moving. Kia ora kōrua. thank you so much for your time and insights this evening. Ben Thomas and Chelsea Bagani on the panel. My interview with the new head of the district courts is next. The first Māori chief district court judge, he led the work to create specialist courts for youth and drug offenders. He has a personal mission to change the way justice is delivered. Kia ora, welcome back. Judge Hemi Tomonu says it's time for our justice system to change. The Chief Judge has experience in trying new ideas. It's more than a decade since he developed and presided over the first Rangatahi Court, a special marae-based court for young offenders. Hemi Tomonu now wants to see similar programmes extended, with more of a focus on specialist courts and tikanga Māori. I visited him a week into his new job and started by asking what he brings to the role. Well, if we think about the current state of Aotearoa New Zealand, this is a situation where we're facing unprecedented calls for transformative change. What we're hearing is effectively people saying they come to court, they believe that they're not being heard properly, they're not being understood, and they're not receiving a fair hearing as a result of that. That's what they're feeling, that's the nature and the consistent theme of these reports that have come to light and the District Court does have to respond in a measured way that addresses those concerns. A measured response, but are we talking about what is essentially radical change in this space? The District Court is the people's court. It's the court where 95% of the justice in this country is dispensed. When people come to court, they do need to believe that they have been heard and understood and that they've received a fair trial as a result. That doesn't mean necessarily they're going to agree with the result, and that's a fairly important thing that we need to be clear about, but it does mean that they have had a fair hearing. In 2011, 40% of young people arrested were Māori. In 2018, 66% of young people arrested in New Zealand are Māori. Is that what you mean when you talk about different starting points? Sometimes, in fact many times, people who come to our court are more affected by the way we treat them as opposed to what the actual outcome is. The process can be more important than the actual sentence imposed or the decision of the court. And that's really my focus as the leader of this bench mm. to improve the way we deliver justice. So are you talking about rangatahi courts? Are you talking about drug courts? What might change look like? Well, they are courts that have shown the way for the district court in terms of best practice. There's no question that the courts can be, I think, a launchpad uh, for 
the delivery of that type of justice in terms of best practice principles to be delivered across the whole of the country. And one of the focuses over the next eight years will be, first of all, how can we bring those best practice principles from those courts so that anyone who appears throughout the district courts in New Zealand from Kaitaia to Invercargill can benefit from the lessons that have been learned uh, from those courts. You yourself have extensive experience in those courts, but for people who perhaps don't understand quite how they work, how do they differ from a regular courtroom with a judge up the front? It's the same law, but the process has been adapted to ensure that the individual circumstances of each person who comes before the court is fully understood, and sometimes it's included in incorporation of te reo and tikanga, and it's also included uh, all sorts of other innovations that have ensured that the judges making decisions at the end of the day have all the relevant material that will lead to a fair decision being made. There will be some people who, who watch your comments and prickle who say that applying a tikanga Māori approach to offenders is effectively a way of going soft on crime and that if you do the crime, you do the time. What do you say to that? Well, there's probably two aspects to the answer. The first aspect would be recognising that tikanga and te reo is part of the two founding cultures of New Zealand Aotearoa and it has a valuable place in our legal system and it's had a valuable place in our legal history as well. The other aspect to that concern or that question would be to simply recognise that people do come from different starting points. And it's not just about te reo Māori or tikanga. In modern day New Zealand, we are a multicultural society and the district court is the people's court. It must reflect the communities that it serves and that means that it needs to be culturally competent in terms of all of the ethnicities that we serve in our court. You yourself speak te reo Māori. Would you, would you like to see more judges speaking Māori? Being fluent in te reo Māori or competent at least in te reo Māori is one thing. Being able to pronounce Māori names is a very important part of being a public official such as a judge and it goes further than just being able to speak Māori or pronounce Māori. We need to be competent in all of the various cultures of the communities that we serve. Can you think of an example where a rangatahi court has achieved what people would consider to be a positive justice outcome. Perhaps the one that sticks in my mind the most is one that happened very early on in the Rangatahi court. That young person was effectively a walking crime wave and was constantly appearing in the youth court for burglaries mainly. And he struggled to walk down the street without committing a burglary, which was very difficult to deal with both uh, for the police and for the courts. Mm -hmm. Part of the Rangatahi court process was to try and encourage him to learn a little bit about who he was as a Māori and to teach him his pepeha. He started off in a rough way because his first attempt at it was really a request to both do a rap and also to have his friend come in and be the beatbox as he performed his rap. Now it wasn't quite what we were after in terms of having him identify as Māori but it, it was a start and so that's what he did. But he stayed with the court for three months, he was monitored on his plan, he engaged, he really engaged with the the way that we were trying to encourage him to find a sense of self-identity and by the end he was quite an outstanding young person who learned his pepeha and stopped committing crime, which was really the whole point. But he engaged with the Marae process, the process suited him. He found 
this idea of who he was and where he was from. It was a very powerful experience for him and I have to say for everyone else involved just to watch his development. And not only did he rap and have his friend do the beatbox at the beginning, he also performed a crumping type dance. Oh. So he was right <laughs> up there. And so that was one example I can think of about a successful rangataki court. Tēnā koe, good luck. Kia ora. thank you. The crumping is a <coughs> mental image you may prefer not to <laughs> have before bed this evening. Judge Hemi Tomonu speaking to me in Pōneki, Wellington. We will have your feedback after the break. Hey, thanks for your feedback. Janet Goff posted on our Facebook page that Simon really believes they will win the next election. He's dreaming. Mark Allen Morris posted the Northland seat could be gifted to Winston. He only missed out by 1,000 votes. The Green got 1,800 and Labour 7,000. With a seat, they get the proportional number of seats as well. It would be a huge majority for the coalition. That's Q&A. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching and nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. A huge thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.